0: Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders in the sports event industry. This is Jason Gewirtz, Vice President of the Sports Division for North Star Meetings Group and the Executive Editor and Publisher of Sports Travel. And our guest on this episode is Tom Cove, the President and CEO of the Sports and Fitness Industry Association, which for decades has been tracking sports participation levels across hundreds of sports across all age levels. The SFIA's latest top line report is out for 2022, and in this episode, we will take a deep dive into the data and discuss some takeaways that sports organizations and host cities can pull from the latest research on who is playing what sport and when. But before we begin, this episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Myrtle Beach Convention Center in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The Myrtle Beach Convention Center makes this coastal city more than another top ranking vacation spot. It is also ideal for competitive sporting events, trade shows, conventions, and consumer shows. The convention center's 100,800 square foot exhibit hall is divisible into three sections. The convention center's 17,000 square foot grand ballroom has 24 foot ceilings and is suitable for functions with up to 1,000 guests for five simultaneous meetings. As for meetings and conferences, the center has 17 meeting rooms spanning across two levels. The glass-enclosed Hall of Fame provides space for registration and a stunning venue for receptions. Planners can also host an oyster roast or outdoor activities on the 30,000-square-foot events plaza. Don't hesitate to reserve your exclusive tour today. For more information, visit MyrtleBeachConventionCenter.com. And now, on to the conversation. There's nothing quite as valuable to sports organizations and destinations that host their events as data. And one of the leading organizations that's been diving into data analysis for years is the Sports and Fitness Industry Association. The association, whose members include sporting goods and fitness brands, manufacturers, retails, and marketers, has one of the deepest data pools in the country, annually surveying Americans six years old and up about their levels of participation in a list of sports that now tops 100%. 120 different activities. Every year, the association issues reports on which of those sports and activities are on the upswing and which are headed down. Toss in a worldwide pandemic that has fundamentally shifted the way everyone participates in the activities they love, and you've got a data set that is ripe for analysis and contemplation for all who have their hands in organizing sports events at all levels. Tom Cove has been the association's longtime president and CEO, and his take on why some sports are doing better than others is always worth a listen. In this episode, we will discuss with him those activities that are faring well and why, uh, what impact the Olympics is having on sports that are part of the official program, what sports event organizers should be thinking about when it comes to retaining athletes, and how age and income can determine not only your level of activity, but the types of things you might go out and try. It's a fascinating conversation and one with considerable takeaways for anyone who has their hand in the sports event industry. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Tom Cove, welcome to the Sports Travel podcast. Pleasure to be here. It's nice to connect with you again. It's been a little while. The SFIA is always on the cutting edge of research when it comes to participation in sports at all levels, and so I've always found your work of interest in that capacity since our audience contains a little bit of everything across the sports world, and when we talk about how active people are, I think it plays a role, obviously, not just in the events that are being staged, but the, the interest that people have in events, and I think that trickles down to uh, their willingness to to watch, to participate, to travel to events. I think it's all tied together, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you, Tom, about this latest top-line report that SFIA has put together. There's a lot of great information in there, and I, I feel we could probably talk for hours on this, but we uh, we won't quite go that long, but I do want to ask you quite a bit about the work that you and your team have been putting in. So uh, thanks again for for taking the time to chat.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And and we've gone back on together, our organizations and the kind of work is so central to being able to Provide good data means good policy, means good access, means good programming, means quality sports. So, you know, we're all in this together. And I realize, especially a lot of your listeners, that the fact that they're providing these unique experiences, anything we can do to make them as good as possible for everybody involved. You know, we our mission statement is to promote sports and fitness participation and industry vitality. And we find that's intentional. We think that the more people play and the better the experience, the more you know about it, then the better the quality of both of sport and of business will be
0: yeah well let's uh let's dive into some numbers here Tom but before we do because there's quite a bit in here let's get some of the wonky stuff out of the way you, you do this uh, top line report every year you're, you're constantly I mean year-round gauging participation levels how many people do you survey uh, you know what age groups what's the parameters of this work that your team does in putting this report together
1: sure so it starts that it is a consortium of eight different Uh, national organizations in the sports business and we hire an outside firm then who hires another outside firm and we do it every year and it's a survey of all Americans six-year-old and over and different from what many people do which is to identify registrations or payments or whatever we go directly to Americans and ask fundamentally did you play any of these 120 different activities Uh, how much uh, where Where did you spend the money? How did you engage? Was it formal, informal? And uh, how many times? All of that. The eight organizations or seven, just very quickly, because it's important that we rallied everyone in the business. So it's the SFIA, which covers all sports, the National Golf Foundation, the U.S. Tennis Association, the fitness club industry, which is called URSA, the Snow Sports Industry Association, the Outdoor Industry Association, the Bicycle Organization, and USA Football. So we really rallied Around a single methodology. And the best element of this is that uh, it gathers. Massive amount of data and numbers, but it really captures trends. It can it can go from year to year to year, and we can have a very good sense. We've been doing it for about 40 years, but the last 10 years we've had the consortium. So the last since about 2008, actually, we've had this rigorous methodology. We ask people about 2,000 uh, about 1,800 people a month over a peer every month, and so we get about something between 16 and 18,000. Respondents for the year, and we put out an annual survey, and then we put out a dr- series of drill-down reports that SFIA does specifically uh, having to do with team, fitness, uh, state of the industry,
0: etc., Interesting. So let's get into some of these numbers, and we'll and we'll start kind of big picture, Tom. I think one of the uh, takeaways that I had here is there's good news, and as always, there's some concerning news when we talk about the participation levels and activity levels of, uh, of Americans in this case. So some of the good news in here seems to be that overall, the number of physically inactive people has gone down, which means more people are at least saying that they're doing some kind of activity. Let's start there, at least with some good news. Before we, yeah, so there's, it's everything.
1: terrific news that an inactivity for us SFIA is the lowest threshold you could get, which is did you do anything of these 120? When I say 120, that's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, lacrosse ice hockey, field hockey, uh, but also fitness activities, uh, weight training, treadmill, outdoor activities, climbing, camping, kayaking, obviously sports like golf and tennis, running, et cetera, uh, and even things like Tai Chi and stretching. Uh, So there's a lot of options. Inactivity measures, those that answered no, I did not do a single one of those over a 12-month period. You cannot get a lower threshold. Right, not even stretching. Historically, <laughs> well, we actually don't we don't count stretching that one, but, okay. but yes, pretty, you know, and when we say often- Pretty close. The 120 activities, at some point, wouldn't you just lie about it and say, yes, I did something because, you know, that's incentive. But we get historically about 85. Four million people that said, no, I didn't do that. When you when you play out the whole you know, random sample and take it to a national average. And this year, it's gone down. During COVID, it went down two years in a row, which is terrific and even better terrific that when you break it down by age, the inactivity numbers went down according to uh, six to 12 and 13 to 17-year-olds. Great, great news. And significantly, by several million people. But that is the lowest bar you can get. So what that means is more people were doing something, getting outside, getting off the couch, et cetera. It doesn't yet mean that they're doing enough to really make a difference. That's where the rest of the data comes from.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about the rest of the data. I know your organization is all, often talking about these sort of core participants, so people who are doing an activity on a on a regular basis. Do I have that right uh, in terms of that A
1: a fundamental analytical tool we use because ours is is a frequency measure. Did you play it and how many times? So we have a tool that we've created that basically identifies the total number of participants and then breaks them down by casual versus core. And the casual versus core is not an attitudinal measurement. It's a actual number of times. And we designed this specifically to understand the way sports work and sports are, are participating. And so the core number can change dramatically depending on the sport. So for example, if you uh, run, then in your a runner, a core runner would be have to be 50 times a year. That's running once a week. So most runners run at least once a week, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, skiing If you ski eight times a year, that's a lot of skiing for most people. And you're seriously committed. You probably have your own equipment. You've probably invested in a whole bunch of things. So uh, in the team sports context, it's generally either 13 or 26 times a year. And that basically is are you on a team? Are you practicing? Having some games and it incorporates a low number. So in high school or a serious travel team, that would be a super low number, but we want to incorporate the six, seven, eight, nine year olds also as core players in the appropriate age that they are. So we keep it low and then we really zero in on the core numbers because those are the ones most likely to reflect serious players, people that would commit to uh, go to events, to buy product, to get trained and just stay with the sport over a period of time.
0: Mm -hmm. And I know things obviously vary from sport to sport and from age to age, but in general terms, Tom... What are you seeing trend-wise as far as uh, that level of, uh, you know, committed participation in sports?
1: Sure. So, you know, we're in a we're in a, a, a crazy moment, as we all know, in terms of two years. You know, we're in March at least, uh, and we're basically two years to the month of, of COVID. We have really analyzed everything over a two-year period because it was such a strange and different time. And so, what we have seen is. Some sports during the COVID period really exploded and some really suffered. And particularly to the conversation we're having, team sports were one of the groups that suffered most in the first part of COVID, having lost their season, et cetera. Uh, They came back in a casual way over time, meaning people couldn't play on the team, but they went in the backyard and they ended up playing, et cetera. And now they're coming back stronger and stronger almost month by month. And we see coming into 2022 spring season, very hopeful signs, spring, summer, fall. First time we're going to have a a full year of, of a full access for the most part. So bottom line is that the core participants dropped considerably in team sports of the 23 Uh, for what we classify as team sports, including things like swimming on a team. Most on the core side dropped, but the good healthy sports kept pretty strong on the casual, which suggests an interest. And and takeaway from that also is the one sport that grew in both core and casual consistently over the two years was basketball. And one of the reasons we say about that is basketball is fundamentally different played in this country because it is played informally as much as formally played in an informal venue, meaning a driveway, a backyard, a, a playground, if you will. It's played without a uniform. It's played without formal rules. It's played one-on-one, two-on-two, played big and small. And it's actually played without a referee and without keeping score in any significant way. Think about how different that is compared to a lot of team sports. Most team sports could be played that way, but they aren't. What happened during COVID in a positive way was it was a return to that creative, innovative, backyard, informal, play for the love of it. And now we're looking for that energy around that to transform back into the more formal organized sports. And our early indications are people can't wait to get back on the fields and courts.
0: Yeah, basketball jumped out at me, Tom, reading, you know, through your report, there are a lot of people who uh, say that they play that sport. On um, yeah. one level or another.
1: I often ask, uh, I gave a, a speech to Dix last week and, and um, asked, as I often do, what's the number one team sport in America participation was? And there's a variety of answers. The number one team sport in participation by far in America is basketball, yeah. 26 plus million. And, and it goes from there. Interestingly, the number one team sport played on a high school team is tackle football which is fascinating because that doesn't have the girls and boys away basketball and soccer might, uh, but it has the size of team opportunity. And, and So you have to understand how you ask the question and what it really means. There's still more 17-year-olds in America that play basketball than do play football, but more 17-year-olds play on a actual organized team and tackle football than they do in basketball.
0: Right. It's, uh, it's probably not surprising, but it certainly seems like Outdoor sports and basketball, of course, can be indoor or outdoor, but in general terms, outdoor sports, when we're talking golf, you know, running activities and fitness, those seem to have fared fairly well over the last two years, relatively speaking.
1: You have done your homework, my friend. Yes. <laughs> you know, people you. people ask all the time, and you're right on. People ask all the time. So what worked on what did? Okay. You can capsulize it in three or four quick points. First, here's what worked during COVID. Individual, outside. Social distanced, digital connection. Any combination of those are what really did well. What didn't work was inside, in a group, on a team, or with. A facility that was affected by government regulation, meaning that if schools were shut down, if the public park was closed, if the fitness club was required to be closed. So, what you saw then is pickleball was the number one growing sport, but tennis, golf, golf in a um, non traditional way, driving ranges, things like that, running, hiking, but also things like skateboarding, surfing, those were all big winners. Indoor group cycling didn't do well necessarily. Things like that were tied to a gym. And, uh, you know, some team sports uh, didn't do as well as as,
0: as um, we would have hoped either. All right. You mentioned the big plastic ball in the room, pickleball. Let's uh, talk <laughs> about that for a moment. Your research is showing that that is Uh, Over the last two years, uh, the fastest growing sport in the country. We recently had Stu Upson of USA Pickleball on this podcast. It remains. Uh, one of our most downloaded episodes of this podcast. So, our anecdotal evidence of sports travel seems to back up your uh, em- empirical data that you have. But let's talk about what uh, in the world is happening there, Tom. That, that sport is on a uh, tremendous upswing right now.
1: Yeah. So, let's talk about just numbers, kind of level set there. And then we can talk about kind of reasons and what are the trends and things like that. So, the first of all is the numbers is, you know, one of a almost a cliche at this point for a lot of business analysis with regard to COVID is uh covid didn't necessarily create trend as much as accelerated trend that is 100% true with pickleball pickleball was really moving and 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 a very popular sport coming in in fact it in 2019 was our fastest growing sport of the many sports and and to understand fastest growing you got to understand the math of percentages because if you have a small base, it's easier to have a big number that shows sure. growth. But pickleball is absolutely past this idea of a fad or a thing that comes and goes. No, it is here to stay. It is. It grew over the two-year period of uh, basically 20 and 21. Uh, more than 39%. That is unbelievable and really kind of nothing we've ever seen. Uh, although tennis also grew over the two year period, 27%. So that's, that is radical because that's a legacy sports bigger. Um, and then it has, uh, it's very hard to maintain those, those kind of numbers of growth. So pickleball is a substantial sport. It is the fastest growing. And what's happening now is it's moving past its core group used to be sort of old used to be connected to clubs, used to be probably former tennis players. And now it's really breaking out from that. So I can talk more about it, but the the, the numbers on pickleball are, are real. People ask me all the time, is this thing going to last? And the answer is absolutely.
0: Does it ever surprise you, Tom, uh, the sports that seem to, I won't say, come out of nowhere because you guys are tra- kind of tracking everything and I'm sure nothing comes completely to surprise to you. But uh, over, over the years, does it ever surprise you to see uh, which types of sports might come and
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yes is the answer. The answer to that is yes. You know, like uh, uh, before Pickleball, uh, 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 the same question, what's the fastest growing activity in the country? I used to ask that all the time, and people rarely got it for several years, three or four years in a row. It was stand-up paddling. And so stand-up paddling, you know, if if you live near a lake or if you live near a water base, maybe obvious, but it's the kind of thing that it took off and became available, and people did it on vacation, and they tried it. And importantly for stand-up paddling, as well as for pickleball, is it's pretty easy to do pretty quickly. That's one of the challenges with growing sport. If you know, Tennis and golf and baseball, those are inline skating. Those are skills. If you can't do them and you fall down or you miss the ball or you can't keep up with the way, you lose interest. And pickleball is a game that is easy it's fun, and it's also a great workout, but it's social, too. People could be – it's a big part of it is Is the nature of the way it evolved was it's fun and competitive – yet you can really be social. You know, people say that about rugby too. Rugby took off mm-hmm. many years ago. And a part of that is it holds an allure that isn't so intense about the game. You play when you play, but afterwards you're you're moving on to something else.
0: Yeah, you mentioned stand-up paddleboard. I did notice, and I think it's because it hits... Quite a bit of those four points you mentioned, but during the pandemic, uh, water-related sports seem to have done pretty good as well. I mean, by their nature, they're they're outside. You can do them individually, to a large extent. Um, yes, that was that was interesting to me.
1: And it's also, you know, people wanted to get out of their house, not only to just physically be out, but to clear their mind. And you get out in the water and all that. You'd be, you know, safe. Skateboard, surf, paddleboard, those kind of things did very well. And we think there is a social Kind of mental element of it in addition to just the physical needs.
0: Let's go back to this uh, notion of team sports uh, as well, since a large portion of our audience are organizing uh, events and in team related sports. There were some over the last year that seem to have have done fairly well events like, uh, or sports or activities like fast pitch and uh, swimming on a team, which, which you mentioned. I saw you know volleyball and gymnastics. It, it also dawns on me that a number of these sports uh, happen to be Olympic sports. We were in an Olympic year. Are you still seeing some sort of Olympic bump in general terms in, in some of the sports on, on that particular program? We've always heard evidence of that. And I know the national governing bodies always uh, suggest that they at least see some level of, of interest go up in an Olympic year.
1: Yes. The uh, uh, ESPN calls our research the gold standard of research. And this is one of those that then other, you know, whoever's pushing the sport loves to say that when it's the their thing goes up and the, and the networks talk about it and the and the IOC and the USOC talks about it. There's no question it's an Olympic bounce, what we call the Olympic bounce in the United States. And it, it, to me, made even more sense that this that the power of the Olympics relative to growing participation in the uh, Summer Olympics that we just had uh, now, you know, E21 in Tokyo, because even in that year, which was a lower watched and a lower participation, there was all kinds of COVID issues, and it wasn't as, as overwhelming an Olympic experience globally as it often is, even in that year, what we saw is the key sports that are... Traditionally, American winners and then stories grew. Gymnastics, track and field, swimming, you know, one other, a volleyball, beach volleyball. So those those ones are did in fact grow, and we would expect going forward when the, when uh, the Olympics are going to be in Paris in twenty four, the Summer Olympics, and then in the in L A. Holy cow! We believe that every indication would be the big, and, you know, especially if there are. Big American stars. They really draw, and you think, do they generate participation? The answer is yes, they do. You know, when they, when American stars and have a great story relative to their Olympic experience, young girls and boys go out and play that sport. And and they're not, no one has to say, you should go play, you know, beach volleyball. All they do is watch it and say, I want to do that gymnastics for sure.
0: It's interesting, Tom, as you know, ratings, while still tremendous, a lot of people are tuning in for the Olympics, they are in broad strokes. They're down from what they traditionally have been. Uh, do you think national governing bodies need to be concerned about that, just on, on the eyeballs on some of those sports, knowing that they always do get a bump?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, the Olympics are hard, and, and any global sport is, because sport is exciting when you don't know what's going to happen, and tape delay is a killer. It's all there is to it. And if it's 12 hours and some of the best competitions are going on when Americans are sleeping, it's hard to get around that reality. And we had two in a row relative to Tokyo and China in two years, both of them 12 hours effectively uh, different. So you lose that momentum and that excitement and, and there's other issues that are out of two between uh, COVID and people just not having it in their head. I'm not worried about it going forward. I do think that the you know the idea of governing bodies needing to keep it fresh. Clearly, that's what the winter sports have done with a lot of their, uh, you know, new sports, that that's playing well, that we don't really follow as closely the winter sports participation. But the idea to keep it fresh and keep the audience younger is really valuable. And I think that the governing bodies are going to have to, in the off years, continue to communicate with the younger audience and keep them energized.
0: You mentioned the younger generation. One of the things that I always find interesting in your reports, Tom, are you also break things down, you know, at generational levels. And so I am solidly in Gen X, like smack in the middle of of the curve uh, of that generation. I saw that we didn't we didn't fare too well. It looked like uh, Gen X decreased uh, <laughs> participation uh, ac- across the board. But it's it's always so interesting uh, to me to see. Uh, how these things trend from if you're a six year old or if you're a sixty year old.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating, and you know, we could talk all day. But one of the things is we you do you you there are several factors, but one of the factors with regard to COVID and not COVID is time. You know, the, the we underappreciate how much time is a determinant to whether you can do effectively discretionary activity. So. During COVID, one of the things that helped golf and tennis was people had much more time. One of the things people say about golf is, I love to play golf, but it takes five or six hours. Well, during COVID, they actually had five or six hours. They are working all the time anyway, or they didn't, who knows. But there's clearly that. So going forward, what's going to happen when people have to go back? But they're not going back in the same way. They're not commuting in the same way. They're not going to the office in the same way. Relative to our audience today, I think it's super important to recognize that the team sports experience is also influenced by the potential coming out of the pandemic awareness that their people are looking for life balance and they may not want to spend every waking hour of their time driving their children all over or spending the amount of money that it might be. And so they may have come to that where that informal is good because it, it, it reignites that love of sport. It's also, Hey, maybe we should, maybe we can balance things out. And and so I think the youth sports community and the travel youth sports community needs to really understand the experience of the athlete and the experience of the family and speak to it in a way that makes sense and balances and keeps it super attractive. There is a thirst and a demand to get back to sports. I can promise you, we are seeing it. And even to the point, I won't go on, but even the point where there were surveys done and there were a lot of folks who said, I'm not sure I'm going to go back to sport. I'm not sure my child is going to be ready. I'm not sure I'm okay with the the potential illness. And then the minute it opens up, people went right back because they were dying to get their kids out to play. And the kids were dying to go out to play. And they wanted to be a part of a team.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too, even that that youngest, you know, that Gen Z generation seems to team sports seem to resonate.
1: Yes, well, we we know team sports are fundamental to the health of this country. I will, I can give you chapter and verse. And one of the most basic ideas is they are the gateway to a lifetime of activity, not everybody. But if you play team sports, and frankly, if you have a positive experience playing team sports as a kid, you are so much more likely to be active the rest of your life. And it doesn't mean you're going to be playing that sport. It just means you are one in tune with being physically active. So you can go off to do all sorts of other things, which for our country is fundamental. So team sports are, in addition to all the good business and all the good fun that we have, are fundamental to the health of this country over a period of time.
0: Yeah. And another topic that we could spend an entire episode of this podcast on uh, deals with income levels and, and what that says about your you know, activity levels. I certainly noticed, uh, again, in broad strokes, the, the lower your income, the more likely you are to be inactive.
1: Yeah, that is a that's a that's a something that we as an, as a community and as an industry need to really acknowledge and address that uh, inactivity is too often related to household income and zip code, and we need to really do special access or create a a focus on access. Is the barrier time, but it's oh, but in some cases it's cost, but in some cases it's as simple as access. Transportation. Can I get across the highway? Is the bus able to take my kids home after? Simple things like that. And then as they go on to, you know, more serious commitment to the sport and say travel and tournaments and product and things, how are we making sure that cost is not a barrier to that participation at that level?
0: You're listening to the Sports Travel Podcast. This episode is being sponsored by the Myrtle Beach Convention Center in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The Myrtle Beach Convention Center makes this coastal city more than another top-ranking vacation spot. It's also ideal for competitive sporting events, trade shows, conventions, and consumer shows. The Convention Center's 100,800-square-foot exhibit hall is divisible into three sections. The Convention Center's 17,000-square-foot grand ballroom has 24-foot ceilings and is suitable for functions with up to 1,000 guests for five simultaneous meetings. As for meetings and conferences, the center has 17 meeting rooms spanning across two levels. The glass-enclosed Hall of Fame provides space for registration and a stunning venue for receptions. Planners can also host an oyster roast or outdoor activities on the 30,000-square-foot events plaza. Don't hesitate to reserve your exclusive tour today. For more information, visit MyrtleBeachConventionCenter.com. And now, back to the episode. One of the things I find uh, really interesting in your reports, Tom, are you, you ask these inactive people, I mean, the people who are literally can't find one thing, you know, in 130 (laughs) things that they, that they're, that they do, Uh, but yet you ask them like, if you were going to do something, you know, (laughs) uh, what do you think that would be? And, and that's interesting too. A lot of, uh, you know, fishing and and camping and such. Um, but the, the, another thing that struck me there, even among the youngest generations, they're interested in these team sports. And that's where you see these like, you know, traditional sports, baseball and, and basketball and soccer, you know, still being relevant and having a, you know a case to be made that seems like some of that stuff uh, filters out as as you get older at least you know for inactive people who aspire to do something it seems to me there might be an opportunity there for you know for some of these sports organizations that are still devoted uh, to the youth level of just getting their message out there
1: yeah you're right you're right on we we call that aspirational or or, or, you know aspirational sports as you as you smile as you say you know Mm -hmm. If you wanted to, if you if you could do something, would you want to do it and, and what would that be? And we smile about that, but it's it's the way the world works, is people have all kinds of reasons why they can't, but they still want to do stuff. And there is a place. If you want to do it, there's a place to then connect them. So yes, clearly the things for under 20 year olds, it's team sports. It's weightlifting, or people groove on weightlifting, and and and, and it's being outdoors too. Like it, it's also there's a whole element of for for some group of kids they don't want to be in team sports. That's the people who are attracted to skateboarding, and but most people want to be physically active in some bit way, and most kids want to be on some kind of team sport, or at least have that experience. It is interesting that as you go. Older across basically it wouldn't get to be above 20. It's almost all what we would call lifetime lifestyle activities. A lot of it has to do with what they get most enjoyment out of. Some things have to do with their body. You know, you just can't play rugby when you're you know 60 years old. But it's also this it goes back to they want to do things they can do with their family. So skiing, hiking, camping. Guess what? You can do that. Also, you're getting you're getting the family time. You're getting activity. You're being outdoors. All these. These things add on to each other. We often speak about the value of travel sports as a family building activity. We hear all the time about how families enjoy traveling together. It becomes their thing. They go places. Even some of the kids that don't participate on the team, they get to see new places. They get to do fun things. They go out. And so, you know, people want to be together and have fun and they want to be interested in coming out of COVID. They're going to be wanting to do all those things even more.
0: Yeah, just to uh, emphasize the depth with which uh, your team uh, looks into things, I saw bird watching was on your list, which is something my son and I have uh, picked up, you know, quite a bit during the pandemic. It's not the most physically uh, engaging thing that we do, but it gets us out, uh, you know, we yeah. walk around. Uh, there's, you know, one of your of your hundred or so that uh, actually spoke to me on top of some others.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for a lot of folks, you're not one of those, but there, but a lot of folks, this is all they can do. But it's huge to get outside. You know, there's been several academic studies. This is a whole different level of research. But there have been several academic studies that suggest, especially for people above a certain age, the single most important factor in determining their likelihood of health risk is getting outside. If they get outside every day, they're doing something. And physically outside, and, and bird watching is a perfect example, it changes the whole demeanor of one's day. And so, yes, we think that's terrific. It's, it's just like, you know, activity is activity. Sport is sport. But being in a place that you can, you know, use one's body and embrace movement and embrace the benefits, both physical and social and mental that come from it. That's where the future is for us.
0: This may be a hard question to answer, but let me go ahead and throw it at you anyway. So every time you do these reports, you've got, of course, some sports uh, whose organizers are going to love the, the numbers <laughs> they're seeing in the positive end. There are going to be some who are going to see the negative end and, and wonder what they're doing wrong, I guess, on, on on both ends, you know, for for those sports that inevitably, for Whatever reason are, you know, trending downward. Any advice, you know, to the organizers of these sports on what approach they can be taking to reverse it? Or is it is it so individual per activity that it's that it's hard to generalize?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I laugh because it's you. You captured. You weren't going there, but you you, you captured and triggered me on this because when we do have bad information, I get called. You know, the data are the data. We live and die off of the rigor and the, the methodologies. And people say, "Oh, I loved your data," and then last year I hated your data. And, you know, as well as the numbers are the numbers. So I laugh, but it was, I digress. Excuse me for that. Um, but we are committed yeah, to what the data say.
0: And you can only imagine you know, the conversation. Yes, yeah, so, and
1: you know, frankly, team. You know, a lot of sports go up and down, and 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 a lot of sports have spent time and effort to grow participation, and and then they don't keep it. And retaining is just as important as growing uh, for the health of a sport. But to your point, you know, what kind of lessons have we learned? Uh, one one is that there's an element in this country of over competitiveness. That's all there is to it. There, we've got we've got a reality that we've got to come to terms with that competition is great. Competition is what motivates people. Competition is what drives people to take on a different level of commitment. But at some point, we're losing participants because competition is too much, whether it's it burns them out physically overuse injuries or it costs too much or they just lose interest because they want to do other things. So what I say to people all the time is listen to the athlete and listen to why. In fact, I just mentioned retention. We try to talk to coaches in leagues and say, if you can possibly keep the names of every player you had and find out how many of those players played the sport next year. That is the fundamental basis of whether you're doing a good job, not whether you win or lose, not whether you make a lot of money, not whether you win a national tournament. But if you are keeping people playing the game and, frankly, coming back to your same league, then you are doing something right. Too often we forget that basic metric.
0: Here's a question for you, just as a researcher, Tom, I mean, these last two years, uh, as we've touched on here, have just been extraordinary uh, worldwide pandemic, uh, most of us in our lifetime haven't had to live through this, you know, here you are uh, an organization that that charts uh, the comings and goings of sport participation. And then this thing comes along that just shakes everything upside down and, and you know, throw, throws it out. Is that Maddening to you as a, as a researcher knowing you have, you have decades of growth that you can track one way or the other? Or is it exciting for you that there's this crazy new element into the mix uh, that causes you to and other, you know, the people reading your reports to maybe think differently about the research?
1: That's a very insightful question. I've never thought about it. But the fact is, it's exciting for us. It's exciting for me, because the data are so much more rich now. You know, frankly, from year to year, things don't sort of jump, especially in traditional team sports. And this year, we saw over two year period, we saw so much. Um, And next year, we're going to learn again. So yeah, it's been an exciting time. It's tough, though, when you see so many of us who have been committed to sports and I know sports events that we just couldn't do. It was a sad time for a lot of us in our industry and in our community, not to mention the kids and the families that were missing out, but people have dedicated their lives to, to creating these valuable properties and these valuable experiences and these valuable products. Um, And it just kind of went away and there's nothing anybody can do. So on the one hand, the, the, the research and the, the, Uh, It it honestly invigorates us a little bit because there's so much more to learn and to analyze. And on the other hand, we never want to sort of lose sight of these are real people that suffered through. And, you know, our business, the products, the sale of products actually did pretty well because people couldn't spend money on experience. They couldn't spend money on going to restaurants. They couldn't go to movies. They couldn't go on vacation and they couldn't go to tournaments. And over time, they bought more stuff. They bought a lot of our things, products, they bought things to be healthy and active. So all that's good, but we see people want to go out and use them now. And they want to go back to the fun things like going to events and like participating in tournaments and like getting better at the sport. So, you know, it's an exciting time and we hope to do research around that too.
0: Well, let's end here with, with a look ahead. I know that's always hard to do, but if we were having this conversation a year from now, do you think uh, we'd see some of the same general trends Uh, that you've noticed uh, as far as those increases, the outdoor sports, the the nature of being distanced? Do you think some of that stuff goes away as hopefully the pandemic starts to right itself? Yeah.
1: So in business, you know, we always talk about comps and how you can you know, if you were up 10%, are you going to be measured against that? It's going to be hard to keep the growth rates for some of the things that exploded, whether they be home fitness and home activities or or uh, golf and tennis. Uh, but no, we see them as sustainable for sure. We see that there's a, a th- especially in the in the next 12 months. We think those that were already kind of being active, they might. Go back a little, but they're still going to be substantially more than they were before. And there's going to be a really strong comeback on things that they haven't been able to do. So, for example, the spring team sports season, as an example, they got kind of beat out of two years. In the first March of 2020, uh, right out of nowhere, just kind of taken away from them. In 2021, it was still pre-vaccine. It wasn't quite worked out. A lot of schools weren't back. It was such a kind of a confusion. Now in 2022, spring season, everybody is raring to go. Same thing with uh, the summer seasons and, and, and all that sports camps and sports events and, and things that people, they're longing to do that. So we think a pretty strong, we're pretty gung ho on 2022 you know going into the future, 23, 24, it's going to be hard to maintain these sort of increases, but we should be able to sustain them.
0: On that note, Tom, we'll wrap things up. Let me ask you this. We've talked about you know this top-line report, and we've kind of skirted around the edges. This is a tremendous piece of research with uh, quite a bit more detail than anything we've talked about here. For those who might be interested in acquiring this report or, or purchasing it from you, where where can they go to find out more?
1: Well, that's lovely of you to ask. Thank you very much. Uh, SFIA.org is, is our website, and uh, if you're a member of our organization, you get all of this for free and you can get it at a very reasonable price and it's accessible to everyone through our website, sfia.org. Thanks.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, thank you, Tom. And and thanks for the time today. I think we're going to have to make this a a regular feature. This has been fascinating and really interesting uh, to me and, you know, continue the great work you're doing because I think it helps uh, decision makers on our end as well. Just, you know, put some thought behind, you know, the decisions that they're making and, and where they're going with their own products.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And I also just think that our community, it's a gift to work in this industry. Isn't it? And, and, and to be able to see you, and you know, I've said I've seen you over the years at different shows and things, but to be in a time when we're really all revving back up to really do fun and great things, I'm happy for it. And I'm happy to be a part of your, your, your um, podcast
0: here. Thanks so much, Tom. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features regularly updated breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports events industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this This is Jason Gowers for Sports Travel. Thanks for listening.